Thank you, Lauren. If you haven't already, turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Before we get going, I would like to open us up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, for its truth uh, in what it is. God, that by its nature it is breathed out by you, and we can trust it. Not only can we trust it, but we must obey it. So, Father, as we open up your word this morning, may we have ears both to hear and trust, but also hearts and hands and feet that obey it as well. Father, as we hear your word preached, I pray that you would be with me to be able to speak clearly and to communicate clearly your word and your message from this text. And Father, I pray for those who will hear it, Father, that you would give those believers in this room ears to hear and to be encouraged and to be um, pushed to obedience. And Father, to those who might not be trusting in Christ this morning, that the powerful message of the gospel, just as we'll, we'll see in Paul's missionary journey, would give new life to those who need it, that you would cause those to trust in Christ and to turn from their sin even this morning. So, Father, give us humble hearts to receive your word as your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm often asked to go on a mission, and this mission is pretty serious. The mission is, can you pick up a few things at the grocery store? <laughs> you laugh, but you all know that that is an important mission, right? Get the things that are on the list. And if you're like me, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll get those things, sure, yeah. You get on aisle three, Pick up the phone. Hey, what were those things that I was supposed to get again? We're prone to forget those things. And this is a very menial task. Right? Go to the grocery store, uh, get Sprite and crackers, right? That, that is important, but in the grand scheme of life and God's plan on our life, it is a pretty small task, right? But there are bigger missions, Missions that are shown in movies. I think one of my favorites is the Lord of the Rings. The mission of Frodo and the Fellowship of the Ring to go and destroy evil, to put it to an end for all time, for the saving of Middle-earth. That's a fictional reality. It's a fictional movie. Does it speak to real things? Sure. I think of military missions and operations that at any one moment soldiers give of their lives where the details are so important. This is a mission of ultimate significance. Plans must be followed through with precision or else catastrophic consequences come. I think so often in the Christian life we reflect on it more as a trip to the grocery store than as a mission of ultimate significance. A mission that ought to rule and guide our every movement. 
that ought to be done, not as, well, yeah, I guess I can go get you those things you want me to from the store, but to be done as one who receives orders from not only the sovereign Lord of the universe, but receives orders from the sovereign ruler of the universe and is the one who gave his life for you. And he's got a significant mission to fulfill his plan for the end of time. Just as we just sang, this battle, it's already won, but we have a part to play in it. We have a part to play in God's mission. And I pray that we would be more zealous about fulfilling and accomplishing and obeying the mission of God and the call of God on our lives than we would about anything else. And certainly more than going to the grocery store. The main idea this morning from Acts chapter 13 and 14 is that the mission of God is filled with painful persecution and powerful proclamation. The mission of God is filled with painful persecution and powerful proclamation. Every story has to have some form of adversity, some problem to be solved. And in this mission of God, we have ultimate evil against ultimate good and righteousness and justice. And so when the people of God proclaim powerfully this message of God in Jesus Christ, you're going to receive painful persecution. So friends, this is not a game of Candyland where the consequences are not big and you can start over. The consequences are grave and we'll see that in the lives of the apostles here in Acts 13 and 14. And may that cause us to take very seriously what we are called into. May we think very seriously about this. So from that main idea of the mission of God is filled with painful persecution and powerful proclamation, here's the reason why I'm preaching this text. So that we can confidently endure persecution and powerfully proclaim Christ, knowing the mission is fueled by the triune God. That we can confidently endure persecution and powerfully proclaim Christ, knowing the mission is fueled by the triune God. Let me, let me just kind of let you breathe a little bit as you're like painful persecution, the biggest mission we could ever be a part of, all these different things. These sound really big. You're not the fuel. You're not the fuel at all. The triune God is the one who from before all time planned for salvation to come through his son, Jesus Christ. And it is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who accomplishes these things. He and he alone provides salvation through his blood, atoning for the sin of anyone who would call out and repent of that sin. And it's the Spirit who fuels and continues that same mission. They're not doing three different missions. They're doing the same mission that the Spirit empowers and fuels believers today to accomplish that mission. You're not the fuel. The triune God is the fuel. It's His plan. It's His message. And it's His means that will accomplish this mission. But you are called into this. You're not absolved as a subset of Christian. If you are a Christian, 
this is for you. And it includes painful persecution and powerful proclamation. We're here in Acts 13 and 14. So for your good, we're not going to go into every single text because there are many but rather give more of an overview. This is the expansion from Acts 1.8 to now, where God has revealed himself that he is calling his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they receive the Holy Spirit to be sent out, right? To Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you think about, um, I'm trying to think of how to illustrate it. We'll do this, right? Because this is going to work out great. So you have the Mediterranean Sea here, and you have Jerusalem down here. And as what we've seen from Acts chapter 1 until now, the message starts to go up the Mediterranean Sea to Antioch, which is kind of here. I'm sure people in the Mediterranean would not like how I would describe it. But it is right there in kind of the northern area of the Mediterranean Sea. And then you have what would be known as kind of Turkey and those areas today. So Paul's missionary journey, this first one that we'll see being sent out from Antioch, sails down to Cyprus, which is right about here, and then it continues into modern-day Turkey and then kind of backtracks back to Antioch. So you have this first progression of Paul's first missionary journey that starts out in Antioch, and then it ends in Antioch, and even in between Antioch and Antioch, there's another Antioch. Pisidian Antioch. So hang on tight. There are a lot of places, even you, you heard as Lauren read, there are a lot of places where Paul journeys and spreads this mission uh, with the Gentiles. So this is the first missionary journey. This begins in Antioch. So let's read in verses 1 through 3 in Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. This is the Lord equipping and sending out Saul and Barnabas for this work, right? We've already seen the call of Saul uh, on the road to uh, Damascus, where he had this revelation of Christ in Acts chapter 9, and now he is being sent to be the one who would bring uh, light to the Gentiles. So they're sent out on this journey, and from the very beginning, again, because this is the mission of God, it involves painful persecution and powerful proclamation. I want us to hang on those two threads as we go throughout this sermon and look at painful persecution throughout Acts 13 and 14, powerful proclamation in Acts 13 and 14, and then I want us to look at the mission of God in Acts 13 and 14. Those will be our three kind of spokes to put our hat on. So first, painful persecution. Let's get the bad news out of the way first. Painful persecution from Acts chapter 13, verse 8. Paul, Saul, and Barnabas encounter this grave persecution. Now let's be real clear here. 
The persecution that we'll see in Acts chapter 13 and 14 is not the persecution that we are familiar with at this point in modern day America. Right In Acts chapter 14, verse 20, we see that Saul is taken, he's, he's stoned in the middle of the city, which is interesting because that's breaking of the Jewish law. You're told to take them out of the city to stone them. But the Jews incite the Gentiles to stone Paul in the middle of the city, and thinking that he's dead, they take him out. We don't, at this point, have that kind of persecution. So the persecution that we're talking about is of a different kind, but I also think that we also should not shy away from persecution. We ought not to go after it, but we ought not to avoid it because it is a part of the mission of God. But here, when they are set out from Antioch, they arrive in this first location in Cyprus. And it says in verse 4 that they went to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Powerful proclamation. But with this powerful proclamation comes painful persecution. Because the text opens with a reminder in verse 6 that they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Right? What's going on here? You have the proconsul who is desiring to hear the word of God from Saul and Barnabas. And you have Bar-Jesus, this magician, this false prophet, who is trying to distract them at every turn. So, what do you think happens? Verse 8, But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, this is still Bar-Jesus, okay, he uh, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That is painful persecution in that there is this opposition where Elimus is opposing the work of the apostles and the ministry of the word. And then you have this powerful proclamation, which we'll get into some more. But at this point, Elimus doesn't do anything physically to them. So it's not entirely painful, but even our words and the opposition that we face in opposition to the gospel can be extremely painful because we want people to hear the good news. We want people to hear that faith comes by hearing. The faith comes by grace in Christ alone. We want them to hear that. And anybody who stands in the way of that, you want to you wanna do something fierce to them. Throw elbows. Punch them in the throat. Whatever you want to do to them, you want to do it. Not because you want to harm them, but because you want them to hear the good news. So in the midst of this opposition, they continue to preach. Another example of painful persecution in Acts chapter 13, verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women. They stirred up persecution against them, and they drove them out of the city. Paul has just preached this sermon in the synagogue, and it says in verse 
50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. This is not just a verbal, hey, you get out of our city. This is a physical altercation that leads them out of the city. But we see even in the face of this power, this painful persecution, we see that the apostles, verse 51, shook off the dust from their feet and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Another area of painful persecution we see in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Chapter 14, verse 2 and 3. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So not only are they trying to distract, they're trying to deceive. Hey, 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 I know you just heard Saul, and I know you just heard Barnabas say this thing, but they are stupid. They don't even know what they're talking about. So these Jews, these religious leaders, sought to deceive sought to stir up and poison the minds against the brothers. What might poisoning the minds look like? We often can see that in society and culture that tells us to think a certain way and do a certain thing and to fall in line with everybody else doing the same old thing. The poisoning of the mind is anything that does not accord with Scripture. And that's why Paul later tells us to be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because there are deceivers who are seeking to poison your mind. And not only that, sometimes we like that. We don't like a message that says, hey, if you want to accomplish the mission of God that is fueled by the triune God, he will see to it that you will be safe for all eternity. But hey, you're going to encounter some painful persecution. You're going to encounter some of the same things that your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ encountered. Not because of you, but because of him. We say, I'd rather a health, wealth, and prosperity thing, right? I'd rather not get stomach bugs. I'd just rather, you know, get somebody's, uh, you know, some famous speaker's hanky and just not have any of that stuff influence my life and my body. And I'd, I'd rather just be rich. And I, I'd rather not have to do the painful stuff because that just, right? We are so quick to be deceived. Paul writes to Timothy and he tells him there will come a time where people will not endure sound doctrine anymore but they will find for themselves messages that tickle their ears. May we continue to be rooted in the Scripture that we have before us. This is a persecution that they endure, that these Jews desire to poison the minds of this message. But we need to continue to be reminded that the message won't be thwarted. We saw that last week. The message won't be thwarted. The mission won't be stopped because just as we sang, the battle's already won. The battle's already won. The stopwatch is ticking. The countdown is on to when 
Satan will forever be bound up. And this world that he has reign over will now become the earthly rule of Jesus Christ, our King. That's where it's headed. There is no question about it. I don't know how it's going to happen. I would prefer if it would happen quicker. But I have certainty that it will happen because Scripture says so. So even in the midst of their poisoned minds, the mission and the message will continue to ring out. We then see another form of painful persecution. I mentioned this earlier, but in Acts chapter 14, towards the end of the chapter, we see Paul is there and he is enduring a stoning. Verse 22, actually beginning in verse 19. This is Acts 14, beginning in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch. I want to just put it in perspective. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium to Lystra. This is about 100 miles. 100 miles by foot, maybe by chariot, maybe by horse, donkey, whatever. But you think about how far Bowling Green is from us. It's 101 miles. Think about stirring up a riot of people from our church to go down to Bowling Green, but you can't take your car. You've got to walk. Because there's people with such a false message that we oppose and could destroy us that we're going to stir up this crazed uh, mass of people to go and incite this somewhat of a riot. Could you imagine? So these Jews are fiery hot against Paul and Barnabas. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Friends, we're reminded that this mission includes the painful persecution of those who follow after Jesus. Jesus reminds his disciples before he had been crucified that a disciple is not above his master, but his disciple will follow in just the ways that the master does. And to know you won't be persecuted because of yourself, you'll be persecuted because of me. Last example. Acts 14, 27 thinking about this painful persecution. Acts 14, verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, this is back at Antioch, they've returned back to their home base. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. What's lacking from their testimony of this missionary journey? They don't even talk about their persecution. Now you may say, well, Luke might have seen it and heard it, and it's not accorded in Scripture. They don't even, Paul doesn't even recount his stoning in this moment. He doesn't recount the 
magician who rose up against him. He doesn't uh, account the Jews who traveled from Antioch to Lystra. He doesn't account all of these different persecutions that they endure, but rather they talk about the message being opened to the Gentiles, that a door of faith had been opened to them. What was on their lips was what captivated their hearts. The Gentiles were believing in Jesus Christ as their Lord. To them, it was the reality of what Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. I think this was the heartbeat of this testimony. For this light momentary affliction. Think about who's writing these words in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul, who just in these previous passages has been stoned, has been opposed, has all of these things. And not only that, we see a testimony of Paul's life that he received lashes, that he was imprisoned, that all of these different things happened. But here he is saying to the Corinthians, for this moment, this light momentary affliction, he views his persecution as light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They will continue to be focused on this powerful proclamation. A door of faith has been opened to the Gentiles, not because we did awesome things or because this happened or that happened, but because the message of Jesus Christ is powerful. So support for powerful proclamation. I want to give just a couple examples, and then I want to get to the heart of it. A couple examples of their powerful proclamation. Acts 13, verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Acts chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. They had this spirit filled and power. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And Luke accounts, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Powerful proclamation. The Holy Spirit filled him, and he gave this powerful word of judgment from the Lord. Then we see uh, that they spoke boldly, Acts 13, verses 46 and 47. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's a citation from Isaiah 49, verse 6. Those are some broad examples of a powerful proclamation in Acts 13 and 14. But I want us more specifically to look at Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13, verses 17 through 41, where Paul gives a biblical history of God's activity in preparing a people from all nations for 
himself. Turn with me, Acts 13, verse 17. Paul starts, remember, he's speaking in this setting, and he opens with the Old Testament. He opens with the Old Testament. And what you need to know about this section is that all of the activity in this crescendos in Christ. All of Paul's sermon crescendos in Christ. Why does it do that? Because all of history crescendos in Christ. As Paul writes to the Colossians, all things were made by him and to him and through him. All of this is his. So Paul explains in Acts 13, beginning in verse 17, that God chose their fathers, beginning with Abraham, that he made them great in Egypt, that he led them out in the Exodus by outstretched arms, that he preserved them in the wilderness, that he gave them a land after defeating the Canaanite tribes. He gave them judges, and then God's people asked him for a king, and he gave them Saul. And after Saul, he raised up for himself King David and made a covenant to this king that is an everlasting covenant. For in it, Paul recounts in Acts 13, verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. He is trying to show his listeners that everything from the Old Testament forward is all about Jesus. That it is Jesus who is the Savior of the world. It is Jesus who your only hope ought to be. It is Jesus to whom your obedience ought to lie, not the Mosaic law. Not in Abraham. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He moves from this overview of the Old Testament and moves into New Testament understanding. He says of John the Baptist, that he acknowledges Jesus' superiority, that John was the forerunner of Jesus' ministry. And he says in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. Let's just real quick, all right, stretch out just a little bit before who's coming. All right, let's say it a little louder for the kids who are trying to learn that every answer is Jesus. Who, who, before who's coming? There we go. Before Jesus. That's right, William and everybody else. Praise the Lord. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Secondly, Paul lays out in verses 26 through 29, that Christ is unacknowledged by the religious leaders and is led to crucifixion. So we've seen that Christ is Savior. We see that John is not Savior. And then we see the religious leaders do not acknowledge Jesus' superiority. Look with me at Acts 13, beginning in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. 
And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Who is this message centered on? Jesus. Every turn is leading them to an aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. And it continues. They rejected him. But Paul says there's good news in verse 30 through 37. For he says, but God raised him. Who's him? God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says to us in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Lastly and finally, as we continue to see this Christ-centered sermon from the Apostle Paul, we see that it's in Jesus and Jesus alone where forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Look with me at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. By this man, Christ Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Paul is speaking to people right there. And he says this forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Why? Because he's proclaiming it. He's proclaiming the truth of Scripture revealed to us in Christ's work and accomplished on the cross. You can be freed, brothers, sisters, from the need to fulfill the Mosaic law or to meet a list of requirements or demands. You can be freed by those things and the penalty of sin, not through the law, but through Christ Jesus. This is the powerful message we proclaim. It's not that our proclamation is powerful. You don't have to be like Charles Spurgeon and praise God, because I don't know of anyone in this room that is like Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, the 19th century pastor who taught 20 sermons in a week, uh, wrote thousands of letters in a month. None of us are Charles Spurgeon. And praise be to God that it's not our power, and it's not in our proclamation. The power is in the message. Because the message is fueled just as the mission is fueled by the triune God. I mentioned it earlier. That this plan of God to save sinners far precedes Genesis chapter 1. It far precedes Genesis chapter 1. You want to know how I know that? Because Ephesians 1 says so. That before the foundation of the world, 
For a God who is Alpha and Omega, the beginning of the end, He is eternal. He has no beginning and He has no end. He planned it this way. He planned it, Galatians 4, that at this right time Jesus was sent. He planned it that there was no plan B. There was no other option outside of Jesus. It wasn't, man, if I could just wait for another king of Israel, this would happen. Man, if I could just wait, I'm going to call you out. If I could just wait on David Sloan to come and fulfill the law of Moses. If I could just wait for Sean to fulfill the law of Moses. The reality is, there ain't no way. That's my wife's back there shaking her head. <laughs> I, got more, I got more head shakes than you did. So, um, There is no plan B. There is no secondary Savior. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It was planned of God. And praise be to God that where we could not accomplish this work, Jesus can and Jesus did. Jesus came and lived the perfect life. As we think of being inside of this time of Lent and reminding ourselves of the temptations that Jesus faced when he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, the reminder that he showed himself in that very moment to be approved where Satan sought to tempt him to give up all of his rule and reign, Jesus stood firm. He stood on the word. And not just in that moment, but for all of Jesus' life and ministry, he kept perfect the law of Moses. He accomplishes it finally in the cross. In his finished work where he becomes the lamb slaughtered for our sin. That just as the doorposts of the, uh, of the Israelites in Egypt had to have blood covering it, so too did our lives and our sinful, dirty realities need the blood of Christ to cover our sin. And praise be to God that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. Praise be to God that through the work of the Son, this plan has been accomplished. But not only is it a plan of God, not only is it accomplished by the Son, we see that this is the mission of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are now empowered by the Spirit. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, wait here until you've received power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you'll be my witnesses. Friends, we have that same power today. You may look and assess your skills, your giftings, your abilities, or lack thereof, and say, I don't know that this powerful proclamation is my jam. I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather serve with the kids, or I'd, I'd rather do these different things. Friends, it's not about you. It's about the triune God who planned it, accomplished it, and now empowers us to continue in that mission. What good news. There is no stopping this plan. For it has been accomplished by the Son and now it's empowered by the Spirit for us to continue in powerful proclamation of this powerful gospel that is the power of God to save both the Jew and the Greek. So in conclusion, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, 
You have been a part of God's mission. You have been a part of God's mission. You were brought in by the powerful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that forgives sin and salvation. uh, The forgiveness of sin and salvation are found in the risen Christ and in him alone. If that testimony is true of you, you have been a part of the mission of God. You have been a recipient of that power, right? Because dead people can't come to life. Spiritually dead people can't muster up spiritual life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit working powerfully in and among us can do that. And if he has, you've been a part of that. You've been a recipient of the powerful message of the gospel and this conversion that you've experienced. But not just you have been in the past, you continue to be a part of God's mission to endure persecution and to powerfully proclaim the same message that saved you, knowing that its power is not your proclaiming or your ability or lack thereof, but in the triune God in whose message and mission it is to bring people into his family from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Friends, isn't that such an amazing reminder that the mission of our triune God is to bring people into his family by the work and blood and salvation of his son, that he seals us in his spirit to continue in making disciples who make disciples. This is what our mission is. And if you are a follower of Christ, you have been and you are now a part of it. So let's stop being tardy. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me recount the reminder that Paul proclaimed in the synagogue. that It's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. There is a reality about you and your life that's true of all of us in this room, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And when Jesus, when God the Father looks at our sin, we are detestable to him. And we cannot be in his presence. But praise be to God, just as Paul proclaims to the Jews, there's good news that salvation comes in Jesus. The same is true for you. Your sin can be forgiven. And you can trust in this Jesus, whose work has accomplished salvation for you. So often we can forget the simple Reminder of the gospel that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you and Jesus died for you. Salvation is ready for all who would call on him. Let's pray.